need to have the lights turned on. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our worship service. We have a crowd coming in the back door, so we'll give them a minute to come in. But find yourself a seat, and good morning. So some of you may be wondering who the new face is on the platform. I'd just like to introduce you to Kim Seegers. We're tickled to have her. Can you guys not hear me? I hear myself in my ears. Scott, what do I need to do? You're good. I'm good. Okay, great. Okay, so in case you didn't, that's Kim Seegers. She's... Uh, She's not new to our church. She spends the winters in Tennessee, so she's back, and we're tickled to have her join us on our worship team, so welcome. So we Americans love a story where somebody lays down their life for somebody else. They take a bullet, jump on the grenade, whatever it is. And, you know, today we're going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, which is a time when we remember that Jesus laid down his life for us. He said... Greater love hath no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. And then he goes on to say, and you are my friends. Isn't that just amazing to think that the God of the universe calls you his friend and he laid down his life for you. So that's what we're going to celebrate this morning. And we're going to start the service by singing um, a, a hymn from the last century that celebrates this life that was laid down for us. So if you would stand, we'll get your toes tapping as we sing together, Victory in Jesus.
gathered with you here this morning. If you are new or you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us. If you are new or visiting, we invite you to stop at the back table on your way out. We have a, a gift for you. There'll be somebody back there to answer any questions you may have about the church. We'd love to just yeah connect with you that way. There's also, if you're new or visiting, a, a connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out. Let us know a little bit about yourself. Let us know you're here. Um, we'd love to be able to connect with you that way as well. So a few announcements to bring to your attention. As a church, we talk about often how we want to be a church that does three things. We want to be a church that reaches people with the gospel, grows to be like Christ, and serves others. And so in your bulletin, you'll see ways to do each of those things. So coming up on the 4th of July, there'll be a parade through town. And last year, for the first time, we we passed out water along the parade route before the parade started. Just as a way to bless our community. We want to do that again this year. The two ways you can be involved in that. One is to donate water that we can distribute. If you want to do that, you can just drop it off outside the office downstairs. Um, the other thing you can do is help us actually distribute the water on the 4th of July. Um, if, you, if you want more information about that, you can contact Leah Rayberg. Her contact information is there in the bulletin. 
Second is a way to help people grow to be like Christ. And in this case, in particular, help children grow to be like Christ. Coming up on July 11th through the 14th, we have our Vacation Bible School happening here. Um, and so we'd invite any children in our church family to sign up for that. We'd encourage you to let children you may know in the community or friends or family um, to know about that and sign up. And also if you are interested in volunteering for that, we'd love to have you help in that way as well. You can contact Pastor Ian about that. Finally, the, the third thing we value as a church is serving others. And the means to that end, we're having, coming up on June 26th, we're having a, a ministry fair downstairs following the service. where The various ministries of our church will have tables set up where you can both learn about how to serve and just kind of what's going on in um, their ministries. So if you looking for a way to serve, we invite you to come to that, hear about various opportunities. If you just want to learn more about what the various ministries are doing, we invite you to come and be a part of that as well, and just kind of hear more about the various ministries. We're going to continue our time of worship here in a minute, but let me pray for us and set our hearts and minds on God as we continue this time of worship. Father, we we thank you for the chance to gather together in this place for an opportunity to take a section of our lives to put away other cared, other concerned, other busynesses and set our minds on you. We thank you for the gift of music that you have in some way wired us that moves us to worship and to glorifying you. We thank you for that gift. We thank you for the people who are going to lead us this morning in singing songs of praise to you. And I do just pray for each of us that as we sing, the words that leave our mouths will not just be hollow words that we read on a screen, but they would be the cry of our heart that we would desire to praise you, to glorify you through the words that we sing. Father, you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory, so would our worship reflect that? Would our heart be moved to pour out praise to you? Father, I pray for those in our church who may be experiencing hardships and challenges that make it a little harder to feel like praising, for that you would be with them. You give them an assurance of your goodness and your praiseworthiness even in the midst of trial and challenge. That you give them comfort. That you would heal those in need of healing. That you would comfort those in need of comforting. God, help us to trust your goodness in good times and in bad. And with that trust of your goodness 
be reflected in how we worship you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue our time of worship and music by singing a song that I introduced to you a little over a month ago. I don't know if you remember the Sunday when we had our very own Hannah Ellenwood Munoz sing a song with the the worship pastor where she goes now called Be Still and Know. And if you remember, she sang that in Ukraine because they translated that song to be an encouragement to the church in Ukraine. And for those of you that might not know the Ellenwoods, we support Mel and Amy Ellenwood, that young woman's parents. They're... Uh, Mel is a senior leader of Josiah Venture, which is an organization that has their mission to reach Eastern Europe for Christ. And they have a number of uh, their staff in Ukraine, and they have, I think, almost all of them chosen to stay in Ukraine and, and minister. And Josiah Venture pretty much dropped everything they did when the war started to do um, ministry to the refugees, to get them out and to find them places to live and give them food and so forth. So I thought I'd just give you a little update as to what's happened since then. Um, as of well, very recently, they have delivered 575 tons of food into Ukraine. That's about one and a half million meals that they've brought into Ukraine. Also, medical supplies have been purchased and transported to the hard-hit parts of Ukraine by their brave network of drivers that are bringing stuff in and out. Um, 5,450 refugees have been evacuated to western Ukraine and the EU on 51 buses that they rented and vans. And many of the 752 churches in their network across Central Europe and Eastern Europe are partnering with us to receive those refugees and provide them with safe, long-term accommodations and community. And in Ukraine, the partner churches within Ukraine have provided 12,125 nights of housing and over 27,000 meals to internally displaced people in Ukraine. So that ministry is now also gearing up for their summer programs, which is targeted primarily at reaching youth through a number of different very creative things. So they're doing both their normal ministry plus investing a lot of time, effort in Ukraine. If you care to do something for Ukraine and you want to be sure that every dollar will go and be used in a very productive and uh, useful way, you might uh, consider doing that in the uh, website that's on the screen. So we're going to sing the song that, that we reintroduced and we're going to set ourselves up to hear the the word that Pastor Tim has, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. So if you would stand with us, let's sing together.
Father, we, we praise you, we thank you that you did think of us when we were not worthy of being thought of, when we were broken in our sin. You did not leave us in that state, but you came for us in Jesus to save us from our sins, be made right with you. We prayed you for the work you did for us in Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If your child is ages four through seven and they want to go to children's church or you want them to go to children's church, they are dismissed at this time. They can head downstairs um, for, for that. So in October of 2003, there was this man named Edwin Gallert, and he lived out what must have been like one of my great nightmares. And it all started when he, he dropped his phone in the toilet. And like, thankfully, I've never done that, but I've like had a close call or two, enough that made me like think about what would I do if I actually did happen? Like, how bad would that be? And like, make me realize, like, it's not something I ever want to have happen right? in any toilet under any circumstances. Like, it, just, it would not be pleasant. Right? But for Edwin Gallert, right, the nightmare goes beyond just dropping his phone in the toilet. Right? Because Edwin didn't just drop his phone in his toilet at home where he could go in and get it and not tell anyone ever. Right? But no, he, he dropped his toilet in a, his phone in a public toilet. And not just any public toilet, but a toilet on a New York City train. Like, like I don't know what you would do if you dropped your phone in a filthy toilet on a, a New York City train, but, but for Edwin, there was only one option. Right? And he went in after his phone. And here's where the story turned from like unfortunate to downright horrifying. So he decided to go in after a phone, but however, like New York City train toilets are made, I don't understand, but however they're made, like apparently the phone can get quite a ways down the piping. Right? And so Edwin like reaches his arm in deep into this phone, into this toilet, and lo and behold, his arm gets stuck. He's on a train in New York City, his arms stuck, like shoulder deep in a toilet, and he can't get out. Like, he is stuck. And so the conductor is notified. They try a few things. He can't get them free. And so the conductor like, notifies some rescue tr- crews, a few stops down the track. And rescue tr- crews had to try three different sets of power tools in order to remove Edwin's arm from this toilet. Eventually, the only thing that worked was they had to use the jaws of life to cut the toilet free from his arm. The whole process caused the closure of five train stops along the route. It caused this very convoluted commute for thousands of passengers. It caused thousands of dollars in damage to the train line. It was an embarrassment for Edwin, I'm sure. 
And after all that, the phone was never found. <laughs> Though, like, as the director of the train line said, and this is, a, this is a direct quote, he said, you wouldn't want to put that on your face afterwards anyway. <laughs> now, the reason I share this story is simply this. Like, it shows how we often value things a little too highly. Like, like in hindsight, I'm sure Edwin, Edwin would acknowledge right, that his phone wasn't valuable enough to endure all that he did to try to get it back. It wasn't worth sticking his hand in a filthy toilet. It wasn't worth all the embarrassment that came with getting stuck. But in the moment, he valued his phone so highly that he was willing to stick his arm into a filthy toilet to get his phone back. He was so desperate to get it back that he shoved his arm into that toilet with so much force and so deep that it got stuck so bad that the jaws of life were needed to cut it free. Like he valued his phone so highly that he was willing to cover himself, cover himself with filth and embarrassment in order to get it back. And like, surely the phone wasn't worth all that. But we as people were so quick to get our priorities twisted, to get the value we placed on certain things all out of whack. We're quick to value and esteem the wrong things and disregard others. In today's passage, Jesus makes that fact abundantly clear. In fact, at one point, he's going to say this. He will say, What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So last week, we looked at the parable of the shrewd manager in which Jesus urges his disciples right, to use their wealth to prepare for eternity. And he ends that parable by saying this. He says in verse 13, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus is addressing that teaching to his disciples, those who have chosen to follow after him. But even as he's directing that at his disciples, we discover in today's passage that the Pharisees were in the background listening in. So in verse 14, the next verse, we read this. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this. And they were sneering at Jesus. The Pharisees were listening in and they heard Jesus teaching his disciples about how to use their money in God-honoring ways. But because the Pharisees loved their money, they felt attacked by this teaching. And so, instead of responding to their feelings of guilt by changing their ways, they just sneer at Jesus. And so Jesus, in response to their sneering, he, he shifts his focus. Or he, he stopped teaching his disciples. And starting in verse 15, he turned and he addresses the Pharisees directly. And in verse 15, he says this. He said to them, that is the Pharisees, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. 
And that's like one of the little verses. This verse on the screen right here. Like one of the little verses that I've read like dozens of times and blown past without really thinking about it. I think if we really stop and think about that verse, it should really cause us to, to ponder, to consider. Like if this is true, what things do I value that God finds detestable? What am I valuing too highly? And so this morning, through this passage, I just want to encourage each one of us to ask ourselves that simple question. Is there anything I'm valuing that God finds detestable? Is there anything in my life that I'm placing so much worth in that I am like a man chasing a phone into a toilet, covering myself in filth, going after it? Here's what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning. I just want to read the rest of this passage with you. I just want to look at a number of different things that this passage tells us people value too highly. And then I want to invite each of us to consider whether we may be valuing those things too highly ourselves. And as we we read through this passage, one of the things you'll notice is that there's like a bunch of disjointed thoughts. Jesus is going to talk about First, the kingdom and the law. Then he can talk about marriage. And he's going to talk about like, this story that takes place in the afterlife. It doesn't really all seem to fit together. Right? And depending on what translation you have in the Bible you're using, right, your Bible probably even breaks up these verses into different sections, with different section headers. And you may be inclined to wonder, like, why on earth would, would Pastor Tim like, lump all of these things together in one sermon. But Luke presents this whole section as one long, unbroken monologue by Jesus, right, directed at the Pharisees. So I take that to mean that Jesus wants us to understand all of this stuff together in one unit. It's all connected together. And the thread that connects all these disparate thoughts together is verse 15. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The rest of this passage is like an expansion of that statement. With that in mind, let's read Luke chapter 16, verses 16 through 31 together. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dog came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. 
So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There's a lot going on in this passage. There's a number of rabbit trails we could chase after and make them into full sermons. Like we could spend a whole sermon on the relationship between the law and the prophets and the gospel. Right? Like, like what Jesus calls the good news of the kingdom. We could spend a whole sermon talking about how those two things fit together, like the Old Testament law and the New Testament. How do they relate? We could spend a whole sermon on that. We could spend a whole sermon focusing on what Jesus says here about marriage and divorce. We can find a whole sermon talking about what this passage tells us about the afterlife. And, and someday, I, I'll hopefully take time to focus on each one of those issues in a sermon. Because I think they are important. But this, this morning, I want to keep our minds fixed on the big picture. This idea that what people find valuable is detestable in God's sight. So I just want to go back through this passage... And see what we see the passage tells us that people find valuable, that God finds detestable. And the first thing we see here that people value is their reputation. Which is in the first half of verse 15 when Jesus says to the Pharisees, like, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. The the Pharisees are, are more concerned about justifying themselves, about making themselves look good in the eyes of others than in actually living lives that glorify God. Like As long as they look good to the people around them, they don't really care if they actually are good in God's sight. They value their, their reputation. They value the way that people think about them. Like Maybe the, the same is true... For you, I just again invite you to consider the question: like, what do I value too highly? And maybe the answer for you is, like, do you value, that you value your reputation too highly. Right? And the way this value expresses itself may be different from situation to situation, right? depending on like who you're around and who you're trying to impress. In some situations, you may act one way to impress others and gain reputation. In other situations, you may act another way to impress others and gain a reputation. In fact, I would argue that like, one of the ways that you can test whether or not you 
value your reputation too highly to ask yourself, or if you're really brave, ask someone close to you, like, do I act differently depending on whom I'm around? Right? Like, of course, we all do that to some extent, right? Like, no one acts the same way before a judge as they do at a birthday party. Right? We all act a little bit differently in different circumstances. But like the bigger question is like, do my my values seem to change? Do my morals seem to change depending on the circumstance that I'm in? Am I a, am I a different person when I'm around my non-Christian high school friends than when I'm around my Christian friends? Or do I seem different when I'm around my rowdy crew of coworkers than when I'm with my church friends? And if you are a different person in those various circumstances, that may be an indication that you value re- your reputation too highly. That you're trying to impress different crowds of people and you care more about what they think about you than in being the person God calls you to be. The second thing we see in this passage that people value too highly is a personal autonomy. Right? Personal freedom from moral constraints. In verses 16 through 18, we read this. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing their way into it. So Jesus is saying, like, since I came, since John came and I started my ministry after being baptized by John, like, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. That good news is the gospel. You can't earn God's favor. Right? That... You're forgiven of your sins. And then verse 17, he goes on to say, It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a lot going on here. But the main idea is that while some people... Like the Pharisees, they, they value the reputation they get from being very morally pure. Like other people value a freedom from any kind of morality whatsoever. The people who want to just be free to choose to live however they want to live and not be worried about what God says about how they should live their lives. And they're using Jesus' teaching about forgiveness, and that forgiveness being available to everyone, They're using that as an excuse to live however they want. They're twisting Jesus' teaching into an excuse to live free of any moral constraints. The thinking of of these people goes like this. Since all my sins, Jesus said, no matter how bad, can be forgiven, then I can live however I want. And Jesus here, in this couple verses, is saying that that's not the case. When he says easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. He is saying that like, just because that came to forgive your sins, that doesn't mean you have, that, there, that doesn't mean there is no moral right and moral wrong anymore. And as a way to illustrate that fact, Jesus talks about marriage. It's really important we understand this here. Right? Jesus, in this like, one verse about marriage, He's not trying to give us the 
full scope of all his teachings about what marriage is. He's not trying in this one verse to answer all our questions about marriage and divorce that start with, what about? He's giving us this brief, short illustration to show us how forgiveness and grace fit together with morality. What he's saying here is that even though I've come talking about forgiveness, I've come talking about grace, that doesn't mean you can be all willy-nilly about marriage or any other moral issue. You can't disregard everything the Old Testament says about marriage. Adultery is still adultery. It is still a sin. That's his point. The things that were sins because they violated God's moral code in the Old Testament are still sins now. And you don't get to use the free gift of grace to justify your desire for personal autonomy. Paul addressed the same issue. In his letter to the Romans, he asked this question. Romans 6, chapter 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Like if, if we sin, like, that means more grace. Right? And grace is a good thing, right? So like, why not just sin all the more? Like, that's the rationale Paul is responding to. But how does he respond? In verse 2 he says, By no means. Like, that's not how it works. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The grace found in Jesus is not an excuse to disregard what we know to be right and wrong. So I just ask you to consider. Are there areas of your life where you value your own personal autonomy, your freedom to do whatever you want to do more than what God says is right and wrong? Are there areas that God clearly says are sinful that you're ignoring. Because you value your own personal moral freedom more than God's word. Another thing we, we see that is valued too highly in the passages is comfort or luxury. Valuing money is if part of that, of course. Like valuing money is part of valuing comfort and luxury, but it goes even beyond that. This is clear in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. In verse 19, we're told that there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. It's interesting, like, the different ways that people who are very wealthy use and show their wealth. Some people... Who are wealthy, they, they want you to know they're wealthy. Right? They, they want to flaunt their wealth. Like, just by looking at them, they want you to see, like, oh yeah, that guy, he's doing pretty all right for himself. Right? On the other hand, you have people like Warren Buffett, right? who, who Forbes says is the fifth richest man in the world. But even though he's the fifth richest man in the world, he lives in the same house he bought in 1958 for $31,500. And his, his go-to breakfast is a, a $3 bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from McDonald's. 
He eats that sandwich while he drives to work in a car that he bought at a reduced price because it was hail damaged. And he drives that car to the same modest office he's been working out of for the last 50 years. He's not using his wealth to flaunt how wealthy he is. But some people do. They want you to know. They want you to just like look at them and know like that guy is wealthy. And the rich man in this parable is, is one of those people who flaunts his wealth. And he uses his wealth to live in luxury. We're told he's dressed in purple and fine linen, which is like the most valuable clothing you can have in that day. Like he's dressed in some fancy designer suit. And in contrast, we have this beggar named Lazarus, who we are told is covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dog came and licked his sores. And the fact that the dogs are licking his sores tells us that they are they're weeping, they're, they're leaking, which makes them unclean in the Jewish culture. And he just longed for anything. He longed to eat the scraps that fall from the rich man's table. And this, when this verse talks about the scraps that fell from the, the rich man's table, this is what they mean. These scraps were like hunks of bread that were used not for eating, but to sop up grease from the rest of the meal. In a time before disposable napkins, like the wealthy used bread to just clean their hands. So they got the grease off and they just would throw the bread on the floor for the servants to clean up. That's what Lazarus wants to eat. The napkin. And that's at the height of entitled luxury, to like use bread to clean your hands and then just throw it on the floor. I don't know what is. And even after death, we see this rich man clinging to his seeming right to comfort. After both Lazarus and the rich man have died, Lazarus has been carried to Abraham's side, and the rich man is in torment in Hades. And the rich man cries out to Abraham, Have pity on me. By doing what? By sending Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Even in his state of agony, he's still treating Lazarus like a servant to be ordered around. Hey, send, send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Like He's a servant. He's still a servant. I still deserve people to do my bidding. Even in the torment of Hades, he believes he's entitled to a life of comfort and ease. It was such a value during his lifetime to live in comfort. He said he can't get himself out of that mindset even as his fortunes are reversed. He valued his own personal comfort too highly in this life. He both learned about his comfort and caring for the needy around him. He both learned about living in luxury than helping out someone in need. And so again, I just ask you to consider, like, is comfort or wealth or luxury something you're value, valuing too highly? Are you more concerned about your comfort and luxury and wealth 
than using your money in a way that God calls you to use it. And a lot of times, when people live in comfort, when they live in luxury, like their rationale is, I've worked hard to earn this money. Why shouldn't I enjoy the fruit of my labors? I've earned this. I worked hard for it, so now it's mine. But what makes this parable especially interesting is that Lazarus is the only person in any parable who ever gets a name. The only parable character who ever gets a name. What does the name Lazarus mean? He whom God has helped. Another thing we value too highly is our own self-reliance. Our ability to to do things on our own. Like some of you in this room have probably had that awkward, hard, uncomfortable conversation with an aging parent about how it's probably time for them to stop driving that's no longer safe, or if you've never had that conversation, right, you've been stuck behind someone, like going 15 under the speed limit, getting annoyed because they refuse to give up driving. But the reason it's so hard to have that conversation, the reason people are so hesitant to give up driving, is because it means giving up personal freedom and the ability to do things for yourself. We like to be able to do stuff on our own, for ourselves. Like We value being able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And that value works its way even into our, our faith. And we get these nonsense sayings like, God helps those who help themselves. But Lazarus, whom God helps, is, is the counterexample to that way of thinking. He can do nothing to help himself. He is poor. He is covered in sores. He is unclean in that culture. He can do nothing. Yet it's God who helps him. And at the end of this story, we see him by Abraham's side while the rich man is in Hades. We value self-reliance. But God values those who who turn to Him because they know they can't help themselves. And so again, that's you to consider. Are you valuing your ability to help yourself, your own self-reliance, too highly? Are you slow to ask for help? Do you think you can overcome your sin in your own power? If I just try hard enough, If I set my mind to it, I discipline myself enough, I can overcome whatever sin is causing me problems. I can do it. I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to pray that God would help me. I want to do it on my own. If that's an attitude you find yourself having, I would suggest that you're valuing the self-reliance too highly. One final thing we see in this passage that people value too highly is religious experience. So the rich man now realizes the error of his ways. Like he realizes that he's lived his life the wrong way, but now he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to warn them 
of the torment that Lazarus is enduring. And Abraham replies, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Right? That's him saying, like, They have the Old Testament. Right? They have the scriptures. They have the Bible. Let them listen to the Bible. But the rich man replies, No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. Like, the Bible is not enough. But if Lazarus rises from the dead and goes to them, like, oh, that'll catch them off guard. That'll shock them so much. Then, then they'll repent. Then they'll understand. But Abraham replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the Bible, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man knows right, that his family is not currently obeying God, not living a God-honoring life. But surely he thinks. If someone would rise from the dead and go and warn them, then they would change their ways, and they would repent, and they would follow God. If they would just have some religious experience beyond what is currently available to them, then they'll change. But Abraham said, right, if, if they don't listen to God's word, not even someone rising from the dead will convince them. And it's like striking how often like, we fall into the same pattern of thinking. Right? Like if only I could hear God speak to me audibly. Or if only I could witness a miracle of some kind. If only I could see Jesus face to face. Then I would believe. Then my faith would be strengthened. It's the reason why there's so many books that are in Christian bookstores and bestsellers about these kind of religious experiences that don't even always line up with what the Bible says. But we're eager to hear about people's religious experiences beyond what the Bible tells us because that theme would somehow strengthen our faith. But the Bible makes it clear, like over and over again, that that's not how it works. If you need proof that religious experience doesn't magically make faith stronger, just think of the Israelites at the time of Moses. Right? The Israelites during the time of Moses, right? They they witnessed the plagues, like all ten of them. They witnessed the death of the firstborn sons of the the Egyptians, while their sons are saved. They see God free them from that slavery and they see God part the Red Sea. They see it in front of their eyes. They all experience it. And then they get across the Red Sea and they, they see God leading them, like physically leading them place to place by a pillar of cloud and fire. They experience all of that. And then they get to the Promised Land. And they say... I'm not sure I trust God enough to go in there. They they experienced all that stuff and it didn't strengthen their faith enough to follow God. If you think you're any different, you're not. Some religious experience is not going to change your faith in God if the Bible's not enough for you. Everything we need to know about God and Jesus and 
what faith entails. It's all here in this book for us. No experience is going to enhance that and make your faith go from death to life. So again, I just ask, are you valuing religious experience too highly? Are you busy chasing after some kind of religious experience like when you should be reading God's Word and praying? Are you so busy like trying to hear God's voice in your head that you don't read God's voice on the page? It's right there for you. But we value religious experience too highly sometimes. So all those things we just laid out, they're all things that, according to verse 15, we value highly that are detestable in God's sight. But what strikes me most about verse 15 is how universal it is. Jesus says, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. He doesn't say, uh, some of the things that some people value too highly are detestable in God's sight. He says, the things, like everything all people value are detestable in God's sight. And if that's true, if, if all that we value is detestable on God's side, like what hope do I have? Like earlier we read Romans 6, 1 and 2, in which Paul says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. But then Paul goes on from there to give his, his reasoning for why we should not go on sinning. He says this, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We may live a, a new life. Another place, Paul will talk about it no longer being Paul who lived, but Christ who lives in me. Our only hope of our detestable value being changed. And for our old self to be put to death and for us to be raised to a new life. That's what Jesus came to make possible. When Jesus came and He died on the cross in our place, He did so that we could place our faith in Him. And in so doing, our old self was crucified on the cross with Jesus. Our sins were put to death. Our sins were paid for. We were made into a a new creation. We are transformed. Our old self, our old sinful self is put to death. Our old values that God detests are put to death. And the new self is Christ living in us with Christ values, not our own values. And so if you're here and you find yourself 
valuing things of the world too highly because you've never trusted in Jesus. Like, I would urge you to do that. Like, apart from trusting in Jesus, all that you hold dear is detestable in God's sight. And if you're here and you have trusted in Jesus, then know that like the Holy Spirit is at work in you to daily conform you more and more into the image of His Son. And there are still times when we value the wrong things too highly. But the good news of the Gospel and of Jesus' work on the cross is that like, those times of valuing things too highly are forgiven. And now when they're we're made aware of them. We can repent. We can turn to Jesus, trusting that we are forgiven. We can ask for help to live our life in a way that more fully honors God and more highly values the things that God values and not what the world values. So in a minute we're going to take communion. We're going to sing one more song first. But... Communion is a, a tangible reminder of all that Jesus did to die for us so that we could put to death our old sinful self with its wrong values. And we could turn to Jesus trusting that because He loved us enough to die for us. He loved us enough to help us become more and more the person He has made us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, we praise You for Your Word. We confess that there are times when we value the wrong things too highly. Pray that you would help us. You would show us the places where we wrongly value things that you find detestable. And that as those things are pointed out to us by your Spirit, that we would we would not cling to them. That we would repent, we turn over to you and ask that you would help us. That you would conform us more and more into the image of your Son. Father, we know we are still prone to sin. But by your word, would you show us our sin? that we may bring it to you confident that it's already forgiven in Jesus. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in a minute we're going to take communion, but before we're going to sing another song, just going to help her fix our minds and our hearts on all that communion entails.
lot this morning about how we're prone to, to value the wrong things. But what is amazing about communion is that it's a, a tangible and physical reminder that Jesus valued each one of us more than he valued his own life. He came, that his body was broken, that his blood was spilled. Because he valued us, he loved us enough to die on the cross in our place. So as we prepare to take communion, I just want to give us a few minutes think about, reflect on like, if he values me that highly how highly should I value him and what things am I valuing too highly now I'm going to give us a few minutes to reflect and repent of any areas where we may have misplaced our values we give us a few minutes of quiet and then I'll come back up and lead us in partaking of this Father, you are of supreme value, supreme worth. And though we're prone to forget that and value other things, we thank you for the work you've done for us in Jesus to forgive our sins. Would we never take that lightly? And would it move us and remind us how valuable, how glorious Jesus is? And would it move us to value Him above all else? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He, he took bread and He broke it. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of partake. Jesus, we 
thank you and praise you for the work you did on the cross. We thank you for leaving us a tangible reminder that we can partake together. We never cease to take lightly the sacrifice you made for us out of your love for us and we did not deserve it. We thank you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here today, my encouragement for you that you would go valuing above all else God and the work that He did for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Would that be your supreme value? Would all else fail, pale in comparison? Would you value Him more than anything else? You are dismissed.